The following message was given at Grace Community Church in Minden, Nevada. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, and we're going to start reading tonight in verse 6. So Paul says, Now these things happened as examples for us, so that we would not crave evil things as they also craved. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and stood up to play. Nor let us act immorally as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in one day. Nor let us try or test the Lord as some of them did and were destroyed by the serpents. Nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, and they were written for our instruction upon whom the ends of the ages have come. So uh, a couple weeks ago, we started, looked at uh, verses 1 through 5, and 1 through 5, of course, the emphasis there is on the fact that external privileges do not secure uh, us in God's grace, external privileges... Um, you can be baptized in the Moses. This is, of course, Old Testament language that has New Testament parallel. Baptized in Moses, baptized in the cloud, made to drink of the spiritual drink, eat the spiritual food, um, and yet God was displeased with most of them. We've already pointed out most of them as an understatement. He was displeased with, with all of them except two, right? And so... The idea is, is that there, there can be external privileges that the visible people of God have and partake in, but those visible privileges do not secure favor with God. And so just to, to, to make the parallel clear, in other words, you can be baptized, you can take the Lord's Supper, you can be a part of the visible body of Christ, you can be a church member, and if all of those things are merely external, they don't do you any good. In fact, in some ways, they're injurious to your own soul because, on the one hand, you're you're professing these things as being true, and yet internally, they are just a sham to you. I thought Pastor Smith. Um, had an interesting phrase in his testimony in Sunday school, an unconscious hypocrite, right? Actually just kind of thinking you're okay, but really being a hypocrite. And, of course, that's what Paul is getting at here. And then he gets into multiple examples that were written for our instruction, 6 through 11, and verse 6, which we looked at last week, these things happened as, as types for us. In other words... Without going into too much detail, the Israelites, in a sense, prefigured us. And so Paul's point, of course, ends up being that if we follow or persist in the same sins that they persisted in, we will actually experience the same judgment, the same outcome. And so his first example was, so we should not be, so these things were written so that we would not be lusters of evil just as they lusted. And uh, I, I, think, I think that Paul's point there is, because um, that's a, a reference to Numbers, six, uh, thir- uh, Numbers 11, and the idea is that just as the, the Israelites were craving meat, and they actually the Septuagint says they were lusting after meat, uh, and then they were buried in the graves of craving. So the Corinthians uh, are hankering after their idol meat, served up in idol temples. In a, in a sense, the Corinthians are the new lusters, the new cravers. And then Paul goes on from there to verse 7, Do not be idolaters, just as some of them. And, um, and so this is a reference to the golden calf incident in Exodus 32. And, of course, the reference they sat to eat and drink. This is in the context of idol worship. They rose to play. 
that was um, in reference to uh, sexual immorality. And then Paul says in verse 8, neither let us fornicate just as some of them fornicated and 23,000 fell in one day. And his reference here is to the incident at Baal Peor in Numbers 25. And of course, uh, as we mentioned last week, this was in a sense Balaam's grand plan. God would not allow Balaam to curse Israel. In fact, Balaam was sort of shut up to um, blessing Israel. But then we find out that the Midianite women that come into the camp and begin fornicating with the Israelite men, which actually brings about the death of 24,000 in one day, that that, we find out, was the strategy of Balaam. And in fact, Balaam will be then, in a sense, sort of um, memorialized is not the right word, but he'll be memorialized as one who puts stumbling blocks in front of the people of God. And so that brings us to um, verse 9. And I was, uh, I was a little reluctant, actually, to send out what the topic was going to be tonight because anytime you talk about testing the Lord and then grumbling, I think that God's people just really don't necessarily want to hear about those sins. Um, we're okay with the sins that we don't commit, at least usually. Um, but when we get to stuff like this, this is a little... Uh, closer to home. And so the first incident that is uh, referenced is the, re- is the incident that happens in Numbers 21. Now, <clears throat> notice, how many of you have the ESV? Okay. All right. How many of you have the New American Standard? Okay. How many of you have something different? Okay. We'll lay hands on you. Pray for you. Um, I'm going to bet that everybody except those that have the New American Standard will see in their text, don't let us test Christ. Neither let us test Christ, just as some of them tested and were destroyed by the destroyer. You see that? Did anybody pick up the fact that their version said Christ and I read Lord? Anybody pick that up? So New American Standard, King James, probably, in probably New King James, will say Lord, um, but ESV, NIV, NET, CSB, uh, actually King James will say Christ as well. And uh, New American Standard, I think, is the only one that goes with Lord. Uh, there's, a, there's obviously a textual variant there, and I would say that the, the reading, the right reading, is almost certainly... Christ, okay, almost certainly, uh, I'm, like, I'm, like ni- I'm 95% sure, which means, of course, that the New American Standard is, I believe, incorrect at this point. Now, when Paul says, neither let us, right, so he's using the, the Israelites as an example, right, neither let us test Christ, just as some of them tested Christ and then were destroyed by the destroyer. And um, it's interesting because in the text, it's not just the word test, it's an intensified form of the word test. So let us not test Christ. And so again, this is a significant thing because what it is demonstrating is that Paul looks at the Old Testament Christologically. He sees Christ in the Old Testament. He sees Christ in the Old Testament everywhere. By the way, there's a a very similar thing with Jude um, that we looked at a a number of months ago now where um, the Old Testament text says, Lord, and as Jude uh, references the Old Testament text, he puts in Christ. And, of course, um, Paul understands the Old Testament through, through, in a sense, Christocentric lenses. That's already been demonstrated in 1 Corinthians 10.4, right? So the rock which followed them is Christ. And, I mean, if, if that's not a Christological reading of the Old Testament, I don't even, I wouldn't know what was, right? 
And so for Paul, when the Israelites were testing the Lord, ultimately they're testing Christ, all right? Now, the incident is um, well known because it's uh, referenced in John chapter 3, but the incident is uh, at Mount Hor by the way of the Red Sea. They're going around to the land of Edom, and, and this is what the text says, Numbers 21.4. And the people became impatient because of the journey. You know what that means? It means the Israelites kept asking, are we there yet? All right? Uh, actually, it was worse than that. When it says they became impatient on the journey, and again, this is, this is one of those things that, that we have to really take to heart. These are the same people that had witnessed the ten plagues. And these are the same people that witnessed the power of God at the Red Sea. These are the same people that experienced deliverance by the hand of God through the servant, through God's servant Moses. These are the same people who had already seen God provide for them in the wilderness, and yet their tendency was to still be impatient on the journey. Now, as, as I noted last week, we have to understand, we can't be too hard on them. Because we're just as bad. In, in, in many ways, many ways, you have to understand that living this side of the cross and the resurrection and this side of Pentecost, our privileges are far greater than those of the Israelites brought out of the land of Egypt. Do you understand that? We actually have more light than the Israelites had. And some of you think, man, if only I could have seen God deliver us through the Red Sea. Boy, then I'd really be a strong believer. Uh, Well, read your Bible. Read your Bible. And if you think that seeing Jesus' miracles would have really made you a strong believer, read your Bible. God has done all kinds of things for us by his grace. He's done magnificent things for us through the gospel, and yet we ourselves still continue to be impatient on the journey. So we kind of go, oh, man, these Israelites, they were just awful. Could you imagine? No wonder Moses pulled all of his hair out, right? The people spoke against God and Moses. (laughs) Notice it's God and Moses. And then here's, here's their complaint. Why have you brought us out, uh, why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? And Moses says, didn't you know that was the plan when we started? No, that's not what he said. He said, for there is no food, for they, they said, there's no food, no water, and we loathe this miserable food. What do they loathe? The manna. The manna. It's to, to me, this is, this is really, I mean, as much as I want to say, you know what, I see myself in the Israelites, you have to, you have to admit that this initial, so what are we doing out here? Would you just bring us out here to die? And, um, you know, of course, I, I'm just, I'm sarcastic by nature. So I think Moses probably said, yeah, that's exactly why we did the 10 plagues in Egypt and brought you through the Red Sea was just to bring you out here to die. You found it out. Good for you. Drop dead. (laughs) Then they complain about there being no food and water. And then (laughs) um, they... It's really strong. It's something like, our souls loathe this food, right? In other words, we hate this stuff with all of our hearts, right? You think your kid's complaining about broccoli is something. This is, this is actually way past that. And so verse 6 is what God does. God sends fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people so that many people of Israel died. God sent snakes. 
that went around biting people. Now, I think this is terrifying. I don't like snakes. Jeff Smith has a pastor, fellow pastor, and he goes out rattlesnake hunting and captures rattlesnakes. And I think that's just insane, right? That's just crazy. People that like snakes are weird. There's a reason why the devil symbolizes a serpent. So, come on. And so, could you imagine, you know, you're in the Israelite camp and all these fiery serpents are going everywhere. You wake up, you roll up your sleeping bag, and there's one right underneath your sleeping bag. And they're biting everybody, and so people are dropping dead. So the people came to Moses and said, We've sinned because we've spoken against the Lord and you. Intercede with the Lord that he may remove the serpents from us. And Moses interceded for the people. This, of course, then Moses um, makes the bronze serpent and those that look live, which, of course, then is referred to in John chapter 3. The text itself in Numbers does not say explicitly that they tested the Lord. But what's described for us is them testing the Lord. And so what is it to test the Lord? Because this is, this is Paul's whole point. Neither let us test Christ just as some of them did and they were destroyed by the serpents. So what does it mean to test the Lord? Well, first of all, you, you, you go through the Old Testament and you have the incident at Meribah, for instance, uh, where it says twice, verse 2, verse 7, that the people tested the Lord, put the Lord to the test. Then you get to Deuteronomy 6.16, where God forbids his people from putting him to the test. You shall not test the Lord your God. Okay? Then you have in Psalm 78, Psalm 95, and Psalm 106, which are all redemptive historical psalms telling the story of Israel, All three psalms in recounting Israel's history says, and they put the Lord to the test. They tested the Lord, all right? Now, for some of you whose minds have gone to Malachi 3.10, where God says, test me in this, you have to understand it's a different word than that's used in the other passages. Uh, That sense where God says, test me, the idea is prove me. God invites us, in a sense, to trust him, to obey him, and then he'll demonstrate, prove himself to be faithful. That kind of of exhortation, which is only one, involves God, in a sense, inviting us to simply take him at his word. All right? That's what that's about. The forbidden testing is to tempt, to test, or to try, and that kind of testing rises out of doubt. That kind of testing that rises out of doubt then demands that God do something to prove himself to us. Okay? This is, this is what is forbidden. So, instead of expressing trust, testing God expresses doubt. Instead of expressing dependence on God to intervene in his way and in his time, this sort of testing demands that God intervene in our way and in our time. It is an act of ingratitude. It is an act of unbelief. And it is an act of presumption. It is never right to test the Lord. And yet, we we may not find ourselves doing this in, let's say, overt and blasphemous ways, maybe like the Israelites, um, where we're actually saying things um, that that, that really are blasphemous. But there is a tendency that we have in our own hearts to truly put the Lord to the test. I remember many years ago, 
Ariel and I were, were newly married, and I had one more uh, semester of school, and I was about to lose my job, and so we thought, we had, a, we had a great idea, we had a great idea. We'd go to Wells Fargo and apply for a loan. Okay? This was our great idea. And I figured out exactly how much we would need. And so I'm thinking to myself, we're really super nice people. So I'm sure that the bank will be more than happy to loan us money. Okay? I'm like 21 years old and Ariel's 23. And our credit is zero. Our credit rating is zero, right? So in those days, so you youngsters pay attention to this. In those days, if you didn't really have credit, nobody would give you credit. All right? Nowadays, they want to make you credit junkies, right? So you don't have to have credit. They'll just send you credit cards and just sign this. But in those days, it was hard. So we went in, talked to the bank, applied for a loan, and the lady was very nice, and I kept praying, Lord, this is obviously the way that you're going to help us in this tough time. And it seemed absolutely clear to me that this was God's, this was God's way. In fact, I had, I had given the Lord such incredibly insightful advice that I, I really didn't see how he could do this any other way. And so I was at work. I worked at Michelin Tires, and I was unloading a trailer, and over the loudspeaker, I got a phone call. So I go, and it's the lady from Wells Fargo. And I said, hi, so did we get the loan? And she's like, I'm really sorry. We, we're not going to give you a dime. And uh, she didn't say it exactly like that, but you might as well have said that. And I remember I hung up the phone, and I went back to the trailer I was working in, and I was so mad. And you know, my problem was that I was, I, I would have never said this. I would have never said this in a million years, but my problem was that I was mad at God. And I was mad that he didn't do things in my time and in my way. I told him, obviously, the way that he could help us, and he didn't. And my heart, my heart raged, and I was, I was filled not only with anger, but I felt incredibly ungrateful. And I had no sense of actually trusting that God knew better than me. This is what it is to put God to the test, to think that you know better, you have it figured out, and if God's going to prove himself, he's going to prove himself in the way that you tell him to. Right? By the way, it's never right, ever, to be angry at God. There is this ridiculous teaching that is, I remember reading it in Philip Yancey's book, Disappointment with God. It's okay to be angry with God and then to tell him. I don't think that's right. You know why? Because anger with God is a reflection of the discontentment of my own heart and my unwillingness to yield to his sovereign pleasure and his good will. And anger at God is a manifestation not of me being honest and letting it all hang out, but being angry at God is a manifestation of my pride. And so Paul says, don't you... Dare test Christ, just as some of them, they were destroyed by serpents. Then we get to the next sin, verse 10. I wish we could just skip this one. Testing Christ is convicting enough. But then we get to this. Neither grumble. (laughs) Neither grumble. I love the word. Gongudzata, 
The noun is gongusmos, right? It's, it sounds like it, like grumbling, right? Don't grumble just as some of them grumbled and they were destroyed by the destroyer. So this is, this is the final example Paul's going to use. And I think that what happens is that, that each example sort of prompts the next one, very relevant to the Corinthians. But, uh, you know, so you go from the craving of, of, of the meat to then uh, the, uh, the idolatry and then the fornication and then the testing of Christ and, of course, what's happening when they're testing Christ, they're grumbling. Now it's explicitly, don't grumble just as some of them grumbled. And it could be, this is just, this is just a guess on my part, but it could be that some of the, some of the Corinthian pro-idol temple eat meter par- eat meat party was probably grumbling not only about Paul's instruction, but maybe even grumbling about Paul himself, right? And what's interesting, the other examples are all sort of clearly connected to some Old Testament text. This one seems to be sort of a maybe a broader perspective. There's, there's not a particular text that Paul may have in mind. And of course, um, let's face it, grumbling was the most persistent sin of the Israelites in the wilderness. Now, Paul could be referencing the incident at Kadesh Barnea in Numbers 13 and 14, where, of course, the people did grumble against not only God, but also Joshua and Caleb. You remember that. Moses sent the spies into the land. They go into the land. They come back, and they actually testify that the land is exactly like God promised it was going to be. Uh, but there's a problem, and that is the Anakim are in there. They're giants. They make us look like grasshoppers. And so 10 of the 12 give an evil report, and they say to the people, we can't do it. Joshua and Caleb say, nonsense. God's promised us the land. If God's with us, we'll do it. And the people start to grumble and complain, and the grumbling then spreads so that there is rampant unbelief among the people of God. And by the way, it's, it's, it's at that juncture in Israel's history where God promises that everyone 20 years old and up will die in the wilderness, and it's only those that are under the age of 20 and those yet to be born that will enter into the promised land. Now, 20, I was preaching one time in Louisiana, and uh, the pastor wanted me to do a Q&A, and uh, one of the guy raised his hand, and here he is in, the, in nowhere, Louisiana, and he used to be a Nevada state trooper. It's really weird. But anyway, so he raised his hand, and he says, what age is the age of accountability? Well, I'm not the right person to answer that question because, of course, there is no such thing as the age of accountability. You do know that, don't you? Okay. We're all dead in Adam's sin, right? So even an infant is condemnable by virtue of the imputation of Adam's sin. So I don't go for the idea of age of accountability. There is an age of moral consciousness, But there's no idea, nothing in Scripture that says, if you die before you reach a certain age, you're somehow innocent and go straight to heaven. Right? That's nonsense. Nobody gets to heaven by virtue of innocence because they haven't reached a certain age. Okay? Otherwise, wouldn't need Christ. Right? So, I say, there is no age of accountability. Well, he didn't like that answer, and he said, the age of accountability is 20. I said, 20? So where'd you get 20? He says, book of numbers. Those that were 20 and above were accountable. I'm thinking, man, you need to read your Bible better. I might have said it. 
And I said, do you know why the age is 20? Because 20 is the age of war, and it was that generation which should have gone into the promised land to take the promised land. It was that generation that, that, that should have done that, and those who were of the age of war were excluded because of unbelief and cowardice. It's not some age of accountability. And so, as I mentioned maybe last week or the week before, you have to understand, so there's 600,000 men that leave Egypt. That means that there's a minimum of 2 million Jews that leave the promise or leave Egypt and, and then wander in the desert. So for the next 38 years, that entire generation, I mean, I don't even know how you would calculate to try to figure out how many were, were 20 years and up, but you have, you have the desert being littered with the bodies of disobedient, rebellious Israelites. But there at Kadesh Barnea, guess what they did? They grumbled against the Lord. That might be what Paul has in mind. I think it probably is, but it's hard to say. It could also be Korah's rebellion. You remember that? Korah's rebellion was the first feminist movement. Now, that was a joke. It was the first egalitarian movement. You might remember Korah comes to Moses and Aaron and says, why is it that only you get to speak for God? Right? You remember this? And we want to speak for God too. And so, of course, Moses says, okay, well, I'll tell you what. Let's all gather together tomorrow and see what happens. <laughs> and that group that grumbled and murmured against Moses, of course, they all gather. And this, this actually saved the Israelites some work. You know, the ground just swa- opened up and then swallowed them up. And so, you know, it was, you know, free burial. So <laughs> maybe it was that. But the fact is, when you think about all of Israel's history, they're always grumbling. Always. In fact, their murmuring or their grumbling is the primary sin that the wilderness generation is guilty of. And so it actually is, is maybe important for us to think about grumbling, murmuring, Complaining. I want to make just a few observations about this. First, it's grouped with some pretty terrible sins. Right? Idolatry, fornication, testing the Lord, and grumbling. What that indicates to us is that because it's grouped with really what we would consider reprehensible sins, God himself must look at grumbling as reprehensible. Second, it's a mark of ungodliness and ungodly speech, Jude 14 to 16. You remember, so these false teachers, they, are, they have ungodly speech and they're murmurers and they're complainers. Out of all of the things that you could say about these false teachers in Jude, the fact that Jude identifies them also as murmurers or complainers should indicate to us that there is a, there is a, um, a malignancy to the sin of complaining or murmuring that we don't quite get. James tells us in James 5 and verse 9 that we should not be complaining against one another because the judge is standing right at the door. In other words, the idea is is that murmuring, complaining, complaining against one another actually evokes 
the judgment of God. The Israelites in the wilderness prove it, but it is also something that we see in the rest of Scripture. But here's, here's something practical to consider. Murmuring, grumbling, complaining is a contagious sin. This is what happens at Kadesh Barnea. The ten give the evil report of unbelief, and then it spreads through the congregation so that now everybody's opposed. Murmuring or complaining is a contagious sin. Sin is always contagious in one one way or another, but murmuring or complaining is contagious in a peculiar way. Think about if you're married and one spouse starts complaining about something. How often does the other spouse say, Dear, I rebuke you in the name of Jesus. You are murmuring and complaining. Lay hands on him or her. Come out, you foul spirit of murmuring, right? No, what what usually happens? You end up drawing the other person into the complaint, right? Is this not true? Am I just making this up? Is this just Ariel and me? She starts complaining, then I start complaining <laughs> about her complaining. No. Actually, I complain far more than she does. She, she barely complains, but I can get her worked up. I know how to push the Ricky Ricardo buttons. It's contagious. So guess what? If it's contagious with husbands and wives... It's also contagious to our children. If you want to raise murmurers and complainers, guess what you have to do? It's really simple. Just murmur and complain. They'll pick it up. In fact, sometimes, sometimes you don't have to murmur and complain. They're just murmurers and complainers already. Okay? But the contagion that we can pass down to our children can be really harmful. I remember listening one time to um, to Dr. Bob Godfrey, who was the longtime president of uh, Westminster in California Seminary. And he was being interviewed, and the question was, why do you think so many young people, when they reach 16, 18, leave the church. This is is always a constant question that we're asking, and we're always like searching for cultural answers. Godfrey said something that has stayed with me for, for all these years. He says, I think that it's what these kids see and hear at Sunday lunch. Mom and dad going back home and griping about the church and griping about this person at church and that person at church and griping about the preacher and what's wrong with the church. That kind of thing's a contagion. And so instead of actually talking in ways that, that extol and, 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 and magnify the, the beauty, uh, albeit the imperfect beauty of Christ's people, what we do is we badmouth and criticize and complain, and the kids pick that up and they look at that, and, and, and guess what? They start drawing their own conclusions, right? If this is what the church is really like, if my mom and dad can't stand these people... Why should I stick around? You know what? I really don't like them either. 
And so it's a contagion. Murmuring and complaining spreads like, like gangrene. And so such, such speech implants, just like gossip, implants ideas in people's hearts and minds. Those ideas have ramifications that can, that can corrupt and, and in, end up, in a sense, sort of promoting the same heart disease in other people. kind of speech is the fruit of discontentment, impatience, unbelief, pride, ingratitude, and it is contagious. Now, thankfully, wholesome speech can be contagious too, right? It's not just corrupting speech. The absence of murmuring and complaining, by the way, is actually a sign of holiness. Philippians 2, 14 and 15. Okay. So put away all grumbling and disputing so that you will be children of light shining in this present corrupt generation. Right? So there's a sense in which um, our, uh, the absence of grumbling and complaining is a demonstration of being very conscientious of our witness and a demonstration of holiness. Sinclair Ferguson makes this comment. He says, a complaining or arguing spirit is an expression of ingratitude to God's providence and of lovelessness and pride towards others. It is a denial of grace. It is working against salvation rather than working salvation out into every aspect of our lives. We therefore turn away from a spirit of complaint and dissatisfaction because it is so out of keeping with the spirit of his family. In other words, when we look at dissatisfaction, complaining, murmuring, grumbling, what, what uh, Ferguson is saying is, is we, we want to stay away from that because that's not what characterizes the family of God. It's not the family trait. It's not the characteristics that should, that should identify the children of God. Grumbling and complaining reveals the condition of my heart. You think I have a verse for that? Yeah. Matthew 12, 34, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. You see, this is, this is one of the things that, that... This is the indicator... What comes out of our mouth is the indicator of what's going on in our hearts. There's, there's, no, there's no way that the stuff that just comes out of our mouth is completely disconnected to what's going on in our hearts. Jesus says there's a direct pipeline from here out to here. And if we're just filled with grumbling, murmuring, and complaining, it's because we have a grumbling, murmuring, complaining heart. The selfishness, the pride, the discontent, in a sense, the practical unbelief. Such speech actually betrays a practical denial of God's sovereignty. Think about that. When, when we murmur and complain, what we're doing is we are fundamentally denying God's sovereignty. If I'm complaining about circumstances, I'm leaving God out of the equation. If I'm complaining about people, I'm leaving his grace out of the equation. You know, at the end of the day, most of us, just want everything to go our own way. Right? When you wake up in the morning, do you ever say, man, I hope nothing goes right today. I want, I want, to, grow, <laughs> I want to grow in my faith so bad that I hope 
everything goes exactly the opposite way that I want it to go. Praise God, I can be, I can just blossom, right? No, nobody does that. Nobody says that. We have, we have an innate sense of wanting everything to go our way. We don't want there to be any obstacles to our happiness. Right? We want life and marriage and work and family and church to be problem-free. Right? And we want other people to be what we want them to be and to do what we want them to do. Right? In fact, none of us would say, well, not many of us, some of us might, would say out loud, you know, the problem with people is that they don't do what I think they should do. And if the world was just more like me, paradise, right? Now, some of us know better, right? Some of us know better. <laughs> some of us think, oh, Lord, thank you that the rest of the world is not like me, right? That's, that, if you're honest with yourself, that's the conclusion that you make. But some people, you know, drink their own bath water and think, if everybody was like me, the world would be just a much better place. And the fact is, is that when things don't go our way and people don't do what we want them to do, then we get offended and we get insulted. By the way, when we get offended and insulted because somebody doesn't do what we think they should do or act the way we think they should act, that is a demonstration of our own pride. Oftentimes, this is indirectly then directed back to God. Right? And therein lies the root of unbelief. Remember Bonhoeffer's book, Life Together? And uh, it's, it's the chapter in which he talks about the wish dream. And the idea of that a person comes into church and they've got their, their wish dream. You can apply this to any part of life, church, family, whatever. They have their wish dream. And they, they have it in their minds how things ought to be. And so everything is judged according to the wish dream. And nobody, first of all, nobody lives up to the wish dream. So basically everybody's a loser because they're not living up to my wish dream. And what's wrong with the church? Well, it's filled with losers. Well, what's wrong with my family? Well, it's filled with losers. People that, that, that aren't realizing you know, my grand vision for the way things ought to be. And then Bonhoeffer says something interesting. He says, when the wish dream isn't realized, at first you, you, you push away, you reject your brothers and your sisters because they're not living up to your expectations. But if you're not cured... If you're not awakened to the fact that this wish dream is an illusion, an idolatrous illusion, then you end up not only turning on your brethren, but you also eventually end up turning on yourself, which means you end up turning on God. Grumbling and complaining at, at, at its root is the, is the very idea of, of being discontent with the way that God governs his world and my life. 
There are some of you, you there, there are people in your life and you just think to yourself, you know, man, if God would just get rid of them, I would, I'd be so happy. God would just remove this person. Does not God know better than us what we need? And does not God know better than us in the kind of people in our lives that we need? And you go, well, you don't, you don't know how cranky he is. Well, God does. At the heart of murmuring and complaining is not just, just a denial of God's sovereignty. It's, and, and, and a, in, in a sense, just sort of, a, just unbelief about the way that he governs. But there's also a, a, a sense of, of, of really awful, self-exalting pride because when we're grumblers and complainers, you know what we're saying at the end of the day? I think I deserve better than this. No, you don't. No, you don't. You think tough circumstances or difficult people that we're always grumbling and complaining about and we think, man, I just, I deserve better. I deserve a better spouse. I deserve better kids. I deserve a better boss. I deserve better, 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 better. No, you don't. Lamentations 3.39, why should any living mortal or any man offer complaint in view of his sins? Have you ever stopped to read Lamentations slow enough to see? Why should any living mortal or any man offer complaint in view of his sins? In other words, no matter what you, no matter how hard you think things are, and they, they might be hard. But when it comes right down to it, God always treats us better than we deserve. And it's a grumbling, murmuring, complaining spirit that just says, I don't deserve this. That's right. We deserve hell. We deserve eternal punishment. And yet we have the audacity to complain and murmur against a God who loves us and knows what's best for us. That boss that doesn't recognize how brilliant you are, how stunningly gifted you are, makes life so hard for you. He's there because God put him there. And he has a reason. Maybe for him, maybe for you, maybe for both. That kid that seems so hard, so difficult. You want to just beat your head against a wall. And then you stop and you think, no, I have a better idea. I'll beat his head against the wall. That child is right there by God's sovereign decree, which is wise and holy. And I will tell you, I've preached that one to myself more times than I could remember. And so the sin of murmuring and complaining Awful sin. It's a respectable sin. You know what I mean by that. Respectable people can murmur and complain and get away with it. But in the eyes of God, 
It is a glory-trampling, God-dishonoring, sovereignty-denying sin. And that is awful. We need to think of sin in light of the majesty of God. And the magnitude of a sin is in proportion to the majesty offended. That's what makes murmuring and complaining so wicked. And notice, Paul does not say, do not grumble as some of them did and they were destroyed by the destroyer. And now let me give you 10 points of application on how not to grumble. Sometimes people tell me, there's not enough application in your preaching. Now what they mean by that is, their, their view of application is different than my view of application. All right? My view of application is, if the word gets into your heart and under your skin and either comforts you or afflicts you, then that's application, right? Most people think of application as, I want 10 steps. Okay, I'm a grumbler. Please help me. I want it, I want it on a card that I can put on my mirror when I shave. If you don't shave, then you're out of luck. Here is all Paul says. Don't do it. Right? <laughs> don't do it. They got destroyed by the destroyer. It's bad for your health. Stop it. This is like Bob Newhart version of sanctification. Stop it. You know, actually, the remedy to grumbling is just simply this. Cultivating thankfulness. Cultivating thankfulness. Because it is really hard, really hard, to be a grumbler and a complainer when you've got thankfulness in your heart. You want to fight murmuring? Next time you're about to say, do you know, blah! You take this disgusting image of taking all of that spew and just catching it in your hand. One of my kids was a projectile vomiter. He's like a rain bird. It was terrible. And I'm a, sympath- I'm a sympathy puker. So Ariel was gone at women's retreat. Gene, Gene probably was on this trip. And Ariel was gone at women's retreat. And Alex just hurled everywhere. It looked like a crime scene. And I'm dying. I'm gagging. And so you know what I did? I called Carrie Grabo and I said, Carrie, Alex threw up. Can you come clean it up for me? (laughs) And he did. Pays to have a godly neighbor. Anyway, that's beside the point. That doesn't mean anything. Anyway, when that, when that, when that, murmuring just starts to come out of your mouth. You grab it, you stick it back in. And you think of something that you can be thankful for instead. Right? Right? Thankfulness is the cure to murmuring. Now Paul says, with this we'll close, verse 11, These things happen as an example. He's already said this in verse 6. These things happen as an example. And they were written for 
New American Standard says for our instruction. Does ESV say instruction? Okay. Yeah, so the, the word is nuthesia. You know what word we get from nuthesia? Nuthetic. Okay? Nuthesia is not instruction in the sense of, uh, well, didaskalia would be instruction, teaching. Nuthesia is admonition. Okay? In other words, instructing might be, you know, A, B, C. Admonition is, what's your problem? Don't you know that's an A? That's admonition. So these things were written as an example for our admonition. So let me just tell you that if you feel guilty for putting the Lord to the test, or you feel guilty for being a murmurer and a complainer, Paul says, well, that's the point. That's the point. There's admonition, exhortation. So Paul says, all of this was written as an example for our admonishment, for our warning. Then he says this, upon whom the ends of the age have come. By the way, that little phrase, upon whom the ends of the age has come, means Paul, Paul views everything in light of Christ. And so you have this age, this present age, and the coming age, and this coming age has invaded this present age because of Christ so that all of the stuff that God gave in the Old Testament is in a sense written pointing towards its not only its fulfillment, but its benefit for us, Jesus' last day's people. Make sense? So, we of course are in the last days, and Christ is the one who, and I don't mean that, that in the way you might think, since Jesus' death, burial, resurrection, ascension, and Pentecost has been the start of the last days. And so everybody after those Christ events, we are, guess what, the end of the ages people. And what Paul's saying is, is that Christ's people stand at the end of history, okay, in terms of God's movement in history, when God is bringing all of his divine purposes into focus and fulfillment in Christ. So Paul says, ultimately, as you look at the Old Testament, yes, it was for the ancient people of Israel, and yes, it was for their instruction, and yes, it was a tutor to bring them to Christ, but ultimately, God had a grander purpose than just an ancient book to an ancient people. That grander purpose is that all of that would be written for the benefit of those who would come and be in Christ. So again, the Old Testament is a Christian book for our instruction, for our admonishment, so that we would not be what they were and do what they did. And so God help us. God help us. God help us to learn the lessons. God help us to take it to heart. God help us to remember that all Scripture is God-breathed, and it is profitable for instruction in righteousness. God gave us not only the New Testament, but also the Old Testament to make us holy. So let's pray. Father, thank you for this, this passage, and we thank you for the fact that you love us enough to correct us and to point out our sins, and we pray that you'd have great mercy on us. Father, we pray especially for those of us who are prone to put you to the test and 
Lord, just to be ungrateful, impatient, insistent, demanding. We pray, Father, that you would humble us. Father, may, may we be humbled under your mighty hand. And Father, for those of us that have the tendency, the propensity to murmur and complain, we pray that you would help us to see that those are evil, corrupting words that dishonor you. We pray that, that instead of complaining, you would help us to give thanks. Lord, we, we have so much to be thankful for. So we pray that you would help us to recall those things to mind quickly in order that we may maintain a, a good witness and testimony with those around us. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. We hope that you were edified by this message. For additional sermons as well as information on giving to the ministry of Grace Community Church, please visit us online at gracenevada.com. That's gracenevada.com.